Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew, chapter 18, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to be reading from verses 15 to 20. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from uh, this passage of Scripture. More instructions from our Lord about our community that He gave to us. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So follow along. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two or three, uh, two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name... There am I with them. Now, even before we dig into the details of this text, I want to answer or address what may be your biggest objection to doing what our Lord has commanded us to do here. Here it is. Everyone knows, everyone knows that it is rude to stick your nose into other people's business. Uh, There are public matters and there are private matters and sensible people know the difference. Polite people know that there are issues that you cannot raise, uh, questions you can't ask, observations that you cannot uh, make because it is rude to stick your nose into other people's business. This reminds me of an old joke that I uh, shared with some of the Trek kids last weekend at Dorney Park. Uh, Did you hear about the nosy pepper? Some of you like to eat peppers in your salad or eat it with dipped peppers. Did you hear about the nosy de- uh, pepper? His problem is that he gets jalapeno business. <laughs> Sad. Apparently, though, Jesus wants his followers to get all up in the business of their fellow brothers and sisters. If that's not enough, if that's not enough for you to object to this text, uh, this violation of Albert Muller describes it as personal privacy, there's also what this passage says about your moral autonomy. Jesus imagines a scenario where you could be living your life and a fellow believer could see something in your life, a fault in your life, call you out on it, and if you don't listen, he can or she can make that public And the church can, in response to that, expel you from membership, disfellowship you, excommunicate you. This passage does nothing for our reputation as nosy, judgmental people. And it comes from the one who said, judge not that ye be not judged. Hmm. Well, there's one solution to the problem that some people have had over the years. They have said, 
This passage probably just doesn't belong here. This is probably not something that Jesus himself would have said. After all, it's one of only two mentions of the word church in all of the Gospels. This is probably not something... This was probably added to the Gospel of Matthew later by some, probably a white male, who was trying to make sure that he could maintain control, that he could kick out of the church anybody who did anything that he didn't like. And so this is probably added. This probably doesn't go back to Jesus. So one argument goes. The problem, that will not do. There's no evidence for that at all. These are words from our Lord. And actually, it's striking how much this passage accords with other commands in Scripture about how believers are supposed to treat one another. Do you mind, do you mind if I read a few of them to you this morning? A lot of them are short. One of them's long. I'll warn you about the long one in, in just a minute. But look here, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Let's start there. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Then there's a passage that Merv read for us just a few minutes ago, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, uh, uh, if any one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Then there's 1 John 5. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should pray about that. Now, we won't get into what is John talking about with the sins that lead to death and the sins that don't lead to death. The, the point that John is making is there are, you should be concerned about your brothers and sisters and their, what they're doing. 2 Thessalonians 3 Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Then Leviticus 20, 4 to 5. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man... Now, obviously, we picked it up in the middle of a paragraph, but the point of this is the warning about what happens when the members of the community close their eyes to what this guy's doing, and what this guy's doing is horrific. It, it says, If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, a false god, and if that community fails to put him to death, verse 5, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. You need to get involved, community. If you don't, I will, God says. And then there's this long passage, Ezekiel 33, that may be at the root of some of the things that Jesus is thinking here in this passage. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, now God's going to give them a scenario about a watchman and the duty that a watchman has. When I bring the sword against the land, when there's an invading army, and the people of the land choose one of their men and women to make uh, men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword, he sees the army coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, 
Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. In other words, it's your own dumb fault. That's what the Hebrew original, no, it's not, it's not true. But uh, Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But, think about this, if the watchman sees the sword, the invading army coming, and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, then what happens? That person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Now he speaks to Ezekiel, verse 7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Now, verse 10 and 11 are important as we think about the character of God. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. This is what you Israelites are saying. You're saying, our offenses and sins weigh us down and we're wasting away because of them. How can we live? And here's what God says. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Do these passages help you at all as we think about Matthew 18 and what Jesus might be after here? The Bible tells us that God created the world as a paradise, but it is not a paradise any longer. It is a battlefield. And one of the reasons that we try to obey what Jesus says in Matthew 18, as difficult as it sometimes can be, is because we are about the business of protecting one another, rescuing one another, defending one another in this world that is a battlefield. There are dangers and temptations out there. There are impulses and desires and distractions in here. And we speak to one another to protect and care for one another. We will, let's tell you if this sounds familiar, we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as occasion may require. That's from our church covenant. Sebastian Younger is a journalist, and he was embedded for 15 months with a battalion of American soldiers in Afghanistan. This was in uh, the early 2000s. And after his uh, time of being embedded with them was over, he wrote a book called War. And look at what he wrote about the soldiers and their accountability to each other and the importance of it on the battlefield. He said, Margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had a kind of de facto authority to reprimand others, in some cases even officers. And because combat can hinge on small details, there was nothing in a soldier's daily routine that fell outside the group's purview. Whether you tied your shoes or cleaned your weapons or drank enough water or secured your night vision gear were all matters of public concern and so were open to public scrutiny. Once I watched a private accost another private whose bootlaces were trailing on the ground. Not that he cared what it looked like, 
But if something happened out there, and out there everything happened suddenly, the guy with the loose laces couldn't be counted on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life he was risking, not just his own. There was no such thing as personal safety out there. What happened to you happened to everyone. Do you know what nosy peppers and a brother or sister in Christ who loves you have in common? They both get jalapeno business. There's a sense in which what we're doing here as followers of Jesus thinking about this passage is in microcosm what the Lord Jesus has come to do for us. He has, as we read from the last passage, he's the shepherd who has come to find his wandering sheep and rescue them. He's done it at the cost of his life, rescuing us from our own sin, that we might live with him forever, that we might find forgiveness because of his cross-bearing work on our behalf. And what we do, we go and we find our brothers and sisters who wander and rescue them. And here's the process that the Lord Jesus has given us for doing that. Let's walk through the text. The context of Matthew 18, this passage again, is the disciples have asked Jesus the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says the greatest is a lot different than you think. And he, he delivers in Matthew 18 the fourth of five great lectures, sermons, in the Gospel of Matthew. And this one is about how brothers and sisters treat one another, how we are great before one another. And the subject at hand here in these verses is how we care for stumbling brothers and sisters. Uh, let's think, first of all, about the circumstances that Jesus is thinking about, the circumstances. He says, if your brother or sister sins. Now, some of your translations, several of your translations actually might say here, if your brother or sister sins against you. And there's some debate, there's some discussion about whether or not that phrase against you belongs in the text. If this is something that Jesus said originally, or if against you is something that was added later by a copier, uh, someone copying Matthew out as clarification or um, uh, editorializing on what Jesus said. That happens. Um, we have thousands of pieces of copies of the Old Testament, of the New Testament. We have of the Old Testament too, but we have more copies of portions of the New Testament than of any ancient book by a hundred times. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of portions of, of the Gospels, uh, of the epistles. And, and one of the things we observe is that these copies uh, were made and copies, the originals, we believe, are inerrant and infallible. The copies, sometimes the, the men copying them, the women copying them, made mistakes. And most of the time, in the vast majority of cases, it's very easy for us to determine what the original text was. We can uh, spot the mistake coming a mile away. There are, are followers of Jesus who give their lives over to the setting, the science and art of uh, textual criticism, that's what it's called. Uh, we find these errors, these editorial comments, and uh, either we can recognize the original or, or the, the changes don't make significant difference in the meaning. I, that's the case here with that word, uh, those words against you. We're not sure if that's original or not, but I'm not sure that it changes the, the meaning very much. If your brother or sister sins, whether it's against you or not, you're supposed to respond. The word sins. 
It's a very easy word, but it's not so easy to figure out exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Some people, you might be tempted to read this and say, what? If your brother or sister sins? Jesus, we're sinners. We sin all the time. Even those of us who are Christians, we sin. We sin. We sin. We're still, the heart is still deceitful and desperately wicked. We sin a lot. Martin Luther had a phrase, a Latin phrase, that he used to describe Christians. It'll show up on the screen, I think, in just a minute. Here's that Latin phrase. It's just worth knowing. Simul justus et peccator. Now, it may be a little bit since you've taken Latin, so let me translate that for you. I know some of you have already translated it, but um, let me explain. Simul at the same time, simultaneously. Justus, just, forgiven, um, reconciled to God. At the same time, just and et peccator, sinners. We are followers of Jesus at the same time, just and sinners. So when Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, it's easy to say, oh, come on. What's he talking about? Is he, does he expect us to go up to one another all the time and, 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 and call each other out all the time? Is that really what Jesus wants us to do? Now, notice that objection is a not-so-subtle way to avoid obeying what Jesus said. And actually, this passage raises the question, do you have someone in your life who does this at all? Someone in your life, anybody in your life who calls you out? Who, who comes to you and says, brother, sister, there's something I need to talk to you about. When was the last time that happened to you? There's uh, Leviticus, there's an interesting observation, Leviticus 19.7. Um, look what it says. It says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Don't hate them. Instead, what are you supposed to do? Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share their guilt. Notice how he, he pairs hatred and rebuke. Some of you don't rebuke, don't point out their fault, because you think you're being loving or you think you're uh, preserving unity, when in essence, actually what you might be doing is cultivating bitterness in your own heart cultivating hatred in your own heart. When's the last time somebody called you out? It's a sign that you have healthy relationships, a sign that you're part of a healthy church. If your brother or sister sins, now, I, I, we probably can be a little bit more specific in what Jesus is thinking here based on the context. I don't think this passage teaches us that Jesus is commending us that we bring up every slight Every time somebody forgets something or doesn't greet you with enough joy or, or uh, um, uh, is a little harsh to, to you with their words. That, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think that sort of censorious attitude would, uh, would contradict what Jesus says in Matthew 7.1. Actually, the apostle Peter tells us what to do with our slights, with those little ways that we uh, poke one another. He says, First uh, Peter 4.8, Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We often, we practice covering. For the sake of love, though you have, have poked at me a little bit, for the sake of love, I'm going to forgive you. Unilaterally, on my own, without bringing it up, I'm just going to cover that because I love you and, 
and well, at times we all have bad days and we all, uh, uh, we are merely flesh. We all are simul justus et peccator. So for the sake of love, I'm just going to forgive. I'm just going to cover. This passage though is about sins, uh, situations in which you can't do that. Verse 6 of chapter 18. Look what 18.6 says again. Look in your Bibles here. Well, it's not on the screen. 18.6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, Jesus says, those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So I think in verse 16, Jesus is saying, if you cause someone to stumble, you're in trouble. And Matthew 18, 15, Jesus is saying, here's what you should do if you see your brother or sister committing this sort of sin, this sort of stumbling sin, living this sort of life that causes other people to stumble, that hurts other people, a clear violation of scripture that introduces toxic influence on other people because of, of the hypocrisy in your life or of the things that you're teaching. Um, this toxic life must be addressed. There is a, has been in the last 10 years a great revival of movies and television shows about zombies. Some of you might like zombie movies. I don't like zombie movies very much. They're gross, and I just don't like to watch gross television shows or gross movies. But I, I saw one. I watched one several years ago, and uh, full nerd alert, I watched this movie because I read the book first. Uh, Max Brooks wrote a book called World War Z, and it was quite good, and uh, they made a movie about it, and I watched the movie. There's a scene in it. I'm not commending it to you. I'm just confessing. So there's a scene and uh, in this movie, a zombie's attacking, and there's an Israeli soldier, and a zombie bites her on the hand, and you know what happens if you get bit by a zombie. A zombie spreads some sort of poison, I guess, into your body that turns you into a, uh, uh, a mind-blank, flesh-eating monster. And the poison had been introduced, and this Israeli soldier, she had a friend with her, and he said, look, I've got an axe. If I chop off your arm, maybe we'll be able to save you, and maybe the poison won't spread, so let's do it. And whack off the arm comes. And she was saved. The poison didn't spread. Jesus is thinking about toxic poison that spreads. Jonathan Lehman has thought about this a lot. He says, notice how in the passage, the end result is that the church can no longer affirm the confession of this person, the profession of faith. They start out in the passage, if your brother or sister sins, and at the end of the passage, it's treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. At the beginning, you treat them as a brother or sister. At the end, you treat them as a pagan or tax collector. They go from being a, a member of the church to not a member of the church. You can no longer affirm their confession of faith. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Jonathan Lehman says, there are sins that Christians commit, things that we do, we just do them. And then there are also sins that are so egregious that we can't imagine Christians committing them. He, he recommends a threefold test as we think about what Jesus is saying when he says, if your brother or sister sins. He says, these sins should be outward sins. Sins you can see, because the whole church is going to have to act on this. They've got to be sins that you can see, not attitudes, not dispositions, but words and actions. Just think about it. The Bible is no friend to pride, is it? The Bible is no friend to anger, no friend to lust, no friend to coveting, no friend to envy. 
But those are attitudes and dispositions. They manifest themselves in words and in behaviors, but those are attitudes and dispositions. And he's, Jonathan Lehman argues that the, the type of sins that Jesus is are thinking about here are visible, outward. You can objectively see them. Second, he says, sins that are serious, not just outward, but serious. They put your ability to affirm someone else's faith in question. And third, they're unrepented of. That's not a very elegant phrase, but it'll do. They're unrepented of sins. Remember what we promised each other. We will exercise an affectionate watch, uh, care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as occasion might require. We promise to do that with one another. Now, let's, let's uh, move on from the circumstances and let's think secondly here about the response. The response. What do we do? And Jesus mentions a four-step process here. First, he says, go and warn. Go and warn. This word go is an imperative verb. Go, get at it. Go do this. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't wait for them to come to you and to confess and to express their concern. You go and talk to them. This seems to pair, I think, quite well with Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Uh, listen to what it says. Uh, think about it. So Matthew 18, you see someone sinning. Matthew 5, therefore... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So think about it. Matthew 5, if you're going to worship and you remember, ooh, this person is angry at me for what I did against them, I interrupt your worship, Jesus says, and go apologize. Now Matthew 18 if someone has done something to you, you go and, and talk to them. The offender and the offended are supposed to meet one another, running toward each other to pursue reconciliation. Go. Point out their fault. This word, point out their fault, or point out, has the idea of exposure. And maybe they're not aware of what they're doing. Probably they are. Or maybe they don't think anyone has noticed, and you're telling them. Imagine this uh, scene here. Your child is cleaning up. You, you give instructions to your child to go clean their room. Go clean your room. And they go clean their room, and then they come back down, and you say, did you clean your room? Yes. Do you know I'm going to inspect your room? Yes. And it'll pass. And you go to inspect, and it fails. So you, you invite them to come into your room, and, into the room, and you say, I thought I told you. You did. I thought I told you to clean your room. You did, and I did clean my room. Really? Yes. Okay, how about, and you start, this that you didn't put away, and that you didn't put away, and this you didn't put away, and that. Oh, I didn't see that. Right? Some of you have been there. Hmm. I've been there on both ends of that conversation at various times. And if I, when I'm in the parent end, I wish I was a little bit more gentle like the Lord Jesus would instruct in this passage. Just as an aside, think about this, moms, dads. Notice how Jesus is very interested in the privacy of this initial conversation. Do you protect the privacy of your children when you discipline them in front of their siblings? It's a good thought to have. 
Let's think about that privacy. He says, um, point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, why? Why is Jesus interested in this being a private conversation? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons. One, you might be wrong. You might be wrong about what you're seeing. You might not be seeing everything that you think you are, and you might be wrong. So go privately to have this conversation. Secondly, it forestalls gossip. Don't go talk to your growth group about it. Don't go talk to prayer meeting about it. Don't go, uh, you don't need to call your elder about it. Go and talk to them, you, and, and, and not other people. This forestalls gossip. Notice here, so what Jesus is describing here is a very uh, a systematic process, um, and there are dangers all along the way, and there's dangers not just for the, uh, uh, the sinner, but dangers also for the one who's coming to confront them, to point out their sin. And one of the dangers, I think this is why Galatians 6 says, watch out so that you're not tempted to in the process. One of the dangers is that you might become a gossip. Third, just between the two of you, I think because it protects the honor of your brother or sister. Followers of Jesus do not revel in humiliating one another. Sometimes we do on social media, but in reality, followers of Jesus must not, must not revel in humiliating one another. Now, there's an interesting exception to this privacy in the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Look what it says. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove, that's the same word, point out their fault, reprove, before everyone publicly. Why? So that the others may take warning. I, I imagine in this scenario that there's been a conversation privately with this elder first, but, but here specifically related to an elder's sin in context of an elder leading what he's doing, he is supposed to be rebuked publicly. Why? So that other people will learn from his mistakes, his sins. Huh. Here's some wisdom for parenting too. Sometimes it's helpful for your siblings to see your violation unmasked too because they might learn. Being a parent is hard, isn't it? Hopefully they will listen when you warn, when you go and warn. Hopefully they'll listen uh, and, and great, you've won them over, Jesus says. But if they don't, step two. Go and warn together. Go and warn together. Jesus says, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15, and it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. Here is a principle of justice that has been embedded in our own criminal justice system from the Hebrew scriptures. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why? Because sometimes accusers are malicious witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.16, the verse right after this, talks about what to do with malicious witnesses. So two or three other witnesses are involved. Maybe sometimes you're supposed to get those two or three witnesses involved at this point in time because maybe the two or three need to come alongside you and say, you know, I, I, what happened, what they did to you was foolish and it was sinful and, and they should have apologized, you're right. But you know, this, what they had did to you does not rise to the level of church discipline and you need to, for the sake of love, just cover that sin. 
we're not going to discipline somebody because they didn't talk to you in the foyer, all right? And, and they, they should have. They, should, they could have taken time to say hello, but they didn't. And so for the sake of love, you just need to, to, to forgive this. Maybe that's one of the purposes that the two or three witnesses serve. Or it's interesting, are these people witnesses to the sin or are they witnesses to the, to the lack of repentance? So picture it. I've gone to Gary and I've talked to Gary about his sin and, and Gary didn't listen. So then I take along with me two or three witnesses. Gary, I brought along, you didn't listen, I brought along with me Larry and Curly and Mo, and they, they're coming along with me because they have seen this in your life too. Is that why Larry and Curly Mo, or are Larry and Curly Mo there to say so that they can tell the church later, yes, we saw the conversation with Gary and Gary is not repenting. Deuteronomy 19.15 makes me think that Larry and Curly and Mo are supposed to be witnesses to the sin. Remember, these are supposed to be observable things. But I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that. Maybe they're there to be witnesses to the lack of repentance. There is a pleading, though, here involved in this passage, a pleading where I and Larry and Curly and Mo are saying to Gary, please, Gary, please, what you're doing is hurting yourself it's hurting other people. It's damaging the church. It harms the reputation of our Lord. Please, please, Gary, you have to turn. You have to repent of this. Echoing what God himself says in Ezekiel 33, turn, turn, turn. Why will you continue in your sin? Turn and live pleading. Step three, if they will not listen, go and warn as a congregation. Go and warn as a congregation. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, now we'll stop here for just a minute. Notice that there seems to be this time for the church to plead too. Tell the church and let the church plead with them. Not just Larry, Curly, and Mo, but Shemp too. Let them all plead. Let them all plead with this person that they would turn. And then step four, Remove your endorsement of their profession. If they will not listen to even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Notice they've gone from being a brother or sister to being a pagan or a tax collector. From insiders to outsiders. Despite our efforts, despite our prayers, despite our pleas, despite our patience, there is a time for that to come to an end and for the church to act decisively. Remember how, what has happened here. Based on their profession of faith, this person has come to us and says, I believe in Jesus. And we say, yes, we hear you. We hear that you believe in Jesus. Welcome. Come on in. You can become part of us. We will call you brother. We will call you sister. But now what has happened is you have seen in their life a contradiction between the way they're living and the profession of their lips. What they say they believe about Jesus doesn't match with how their feet are moving. And on the basis, you decide to believe their feet at this point in time and not their lips. And you say, we can't treat you as a brother or sister anymore because of, of this sin that you have not repented for. So now we are going to treat you as a pagan or tax collector. It's important to keep in mind what, what that means for a church to do. We are not, when a church does this, we are not making a statement about that person's eternal destiny. 
No local congregation has the right or authority to say to any person, you are bound for hell. We are sure you are bound for hell. No congregation has the right to say that you're not a Christian. That is between them and God. But what a congregation does say is we say, we have no evidence to affirm that you're a brother or sister. We just don't see it. You may be, but, but there is evidence to the contrary that we see in your life. The second thing to keep in mind here, this important clarification, is that when Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector, he's not talking about shunning. We're, pra- we're familiar with the practice of shunning. It's not what he's... How, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? He loved them. Treat them as an unbeliever. Well, what do followers of Jesus do with unbelievers? We love them. We share the gospel with them. We implore them to repent and believe. This person used to be a subject of our Christian fellowship. Now they're a subject of our Christian evangelism. We're trying to win them because they're apparently not brothers or sisters. So... Can someone that we are, have, have decided to treat as a pagan or tax collector attend services? Absolutely. Open the door wide and let them in. Because we want them to hear the preaching of the word so that maybe they'll repent. If the church has done this, uh, has decided to treat your father as a pagan or tax collector, should you buy him a Father's Day card? Absolutely. Because the scriptures say to honor your father and your mother. Should you, if a church decides that on the basis of their life, they're going to treat your son as a pagan or tax collector, should you have them to your house for Christmas? Absolutely. They're your son. You love them. You love him. But the church has said to him, we can't treat you as a believer. That does not sever your human relationships. And it doesn't mean that the church shuns you either. It means that you're now... A, a, a member of evangelism. So when, when they come, can they attend church? Absolutely. Can they serve in the nursery? No. Can they teach Sunday school? No. Can they serve in the worship team? No. Should they take the Lord's Supper? No. This is not shunning. This is moving you from fellowship to evangelism. There's important clarifications about this in, in, in verses 18 through 20. Reasons why we should do this with confidence, why we should move forward. Because, first of all, um, we are acting in accordance with God's will. That's what verse 18 says. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound, it should say, will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You're doing, when you're following these commands of God, you're doing it with his approval in his will, uh, in partnership with him. That's clear even more so from verses 19 and 20. If two of you on earth agree on anything... It will be done for my Father in heaven. Where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is not primarily about prayer meeting. This is primarily about church discipline. You have Jesus with you participating in this. What's interesting about this, of course, is we have to act together. The emphasis, two or three. This is not an individual act. No pastor, no prophet, no bishop, and no pope has the authority to do what Matthew 18 says a church is supposed to do. Your parents told you to mind your own business. Most of the time, that's good advice. Sometimes there are situations where you cannot. Do you know the name Woody Hayes? 
Some of you are old enough to recognize the name Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes was the uh, uh, head football coach of the Ohio State University football team for 28 years. Over that time, he's a successful coach. He won five, led his team in leading, uh, winning five national championships. His career ended ignominiously uh, in, at the Gator Bowl in 1978. Ohio State was playing, and in the last two minutes of the game, uh, a, a player from the opposing team caught a, a pass that was thrown by the Ohio State quarterback. He intercepted the ball, and he did it near the Ohio State sidelines, and Woody Hayes was so angry, he grabbed that player who'd caught the ball and punched him. Um, he was fired for that. The whole nation was kind of shocked by this. Uh, Woody Hayes was a man no one wanted around. In 1979, pretty soon after that, uh, the Dallas Cowboys uh, went to Super Bowl 13 in Miami, and Howard Hendricks was there. Howard Hendricks was the chaplain. He taught at Dallas Seminary. He was also the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, and they invited him to come to Super Bowl 13. And the day before the game, uh, he was invited down to the field to watch the Cowboys practice on the field. And Howard Hendricks said he was there. It was great. But to his shock, he looked over and saw Woody Hayes on the sidelines. One of the most despised men in America. There he was. Oh, Hendricks said, I'm going to stay as far away from that guy as I possibly can. After practice, they had a team dinner, and Hendricks sat across, it just so happened at this time, to sit, be sitting across from the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, a man by the name of Tom Landry. Tom Landry is a faithful follower of Jesus. Woody Hayes was in the dinner with the Cowboys. And Howard Hendricks said, uh, Coach, wh what in the world is Woody Hayes doing here? How, how did you invite him? Why did you invite him here? This is unbelievable. He's, he's one of the most hated men in America. And Tom Landry said, Hendricks, he's hurting. He needs help. I invited him. I invited him to come down as my guest. Maybe the Lord will give me an opportunity to minister to him. Tom Landry understood something about not minding your own business. I wonder if you do. May God give us the courage and the wisdom to do what our Lord commanded. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize as we read this passage that we who are members of this congregation have made a promise to one another, a promise that we cannot keep easily and for which we are dependent upon your great wisdom. This promise to exercise this affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. Lord, it is tempting and easy for us to think about dodging this responsibility to faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as occasion may require. Lord, uh, sometimes we're cowards. Sometimes we're fools. Sometimes we're impatient and unloving and unkind. Sometimes... We're passive. Sometimes we gossip. You know our many faults. So we come before you, and even in this moment, we plead with you that you would help us as a congregation to do what our Lord commanded, to care for one another this way, wisely, convictionally, 
courageously. Make it so, Lord, in our church that we would have tender hearts before you and before one another. That when these words of pointing out their fault come, we respond and we don't refuse. Drive us forward with the notion of protecting, rescuing, and defending one another for Christ's sake. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.